Thomas Edison once said, a good intention with a bad approach often leads to a poor result. Charles Swindoll said, good intentions and earnest effort are not enough. Only Jesus can make an otherwise futile life productive. Good intentions, good actions with bad intentions. I mean, we are all, we're guilty of both. I mean, good intentions by themselves are not enough. Good works by themselves are not enough. You know, a lot of times our lives, we think we're doing the right thing. We may be doing good things. Our intentions may be good. But unless what we're doing is driven by the Holy Spirit, and unless our motives are to glorify God and to praise Him with what we do, with all that we do, to advance His kingdom, then we can be doing all kinds of things, good things, but not be doing the right things. And that's really what the problem is in the church that we are going to be looking at today as we continue our series and the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Jesus' message to these churches. We look at the church at Sardis today, and they're doing good things. They're active. They're filling up their schedule, but... What Jesus tells them is that while they may appear to be alive and healthy on the outside, in fact, they are not. They are a dead church, and they are not doing the right things, and they're certainly not doing it with the right motives. But in this series, we're looking at what we need to be as the people of God. Our purpose is that we need to know who we are and what we are to do as the people of God. So, you know, if we want to avoid making the same mistake as the church at Sardis, Uh, We need to know what to do, what those right things are. And, of course, it begins with having the right motives, the right intentions. Uh, But we need to know what to do because what happens is if we don't know what to do, if we don't know who we are, we won't know what we're supposed to do. We're going to try different, a lot of different things to be successful, and we're just going to end up being confused. We're going to end up like this church at Sardis doing a lot of things, going in a lot of different directions, but not really accomplishing the purpose that God has for us. Sardis is a little different than the other cities that we've looked at so far. Um, It was built on a mountainous ridge. It was about 1,500 feet high. It overlooked the the Hermas Valley, and it was on the edge of this ridge. I mean, it was was, uh, in a position that made it very difficult to get to. There was only one real way in, one way out on the edge of this cliff, essentially, which made it easy to defend because on one side you had a cliff, on the other side you had the only way in and out. And so it was a well-fortified city. It was difficult uh, to attack if you were going to try to overthrow this city. So for many, many years, this was considered virtually unconquerable. People just didn't even try. But then in about 549 BC, Choruses, who was king of Lydia and Sardis at the time, was at war with Cyrus, the king of Persia. And Cyrus and his troops, his troops found a narrow little uh, pathway up essentially the side of this cliff where they could attack the city. They found another way in. It was a difficult way, but they, they found it nonetheless. And so they made their way up this little narrow little pathway up to the the cliff side of this city, they scaled the wall, and when they got on the other side of the wall, they found something very interesting. The soldiers who were supposed to be guarding the city were fast asleep. You know why they were asleep? 
Because they thought, hey, we don't have any reason to be afraid. Nobody can attack this city. Hasn't happened before. We can rest and rest easy knowing that we're safe. And boy, were they wrong. The city was defeated. Um, They were asleep. They thought they were healthy. They thought they were safe. They thought they were well fortified, but they were mistaken. What's interesting is 300 years later, history repeated itself. The same thing happened again. And then around A.D. 17, there was a, an incredible earthquake that all but destroyed the city. And so that's where we find Sardis when this letter is written. It's a shell of its former self. It's still a very wealthy city, but it's nowhere near what it once was in terms of being a great city. The church at Sardis was living in glory days. It was nowhere near what it once was. And so this, while the people were well off, the city was really just a shell of its former self. And that's the context where we find Jesus' letter to this church. So in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we can read what he has to say to this this city, this church in this city called Sardis. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. In other words, people think you're alive, you look like you're alive, but I know what's really going on, Jesus says. You're actually dead. Wake up. Why do you think he said wake up? (laughs) He's drawing on what I just told you about. Those soldiers being asleep when they should have been awake and alert and guarding. The church should be awake, but it's not. It's asleep. He says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not, you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, in 2019, Christianity Today did a study from 2019, of course, this all pre-COVID, just looking at Southern Baptist churches. And, and Southern Baptist churches have been on the decline for years now. And, and they, saw, they found that in 2019, uh, Southern Baptist had a huge drop-off in membership. It, it went down to 14.5 million, which is down from the peak is like 16.3. So there's been a steady decline and a pretty sharp decline in 2019. Baptisms were at a, at a low as well. Uh, lowest number since World War II in 2019. And of course, We've got COVID, and every church is declined now, right? And uh, that's the reality. We don't know what the state of our denomination, the state of the church, is really going to be until all of this is over with. But we do know that leading up to that point, Southern Baptist churches as a whole have been on a steady decline for 20-plus years. And so you, we all can do the math, right? I mean, if something doesn't change, the future of the church, the future specifically of our denomination is in great jeopardy. We have a lot of dead or dying churches in our denomination. Now, let me be clear. I believe that Wall Highway is alive and 
as, as well in a lot of ways. Obviously, there's always work to be done, right? We need to continue to move forward and press forward. But I want to be clear, I believe, for those of you that may not be familiar with this church, this is a wonderful church, and it is alive and very active and, and committed to pursuing the kingdom purpose that God has given us. However, we all need to be alert and stay awake, don't we? Because it, it doesn't take too long to get into the position that the church at Sardis is in. And if nothing else, we need to look at this church as an example so that we will know how to avoid making the same mistakes they did because they too were once alive and well and, and actively pursuing God's kingdom purposes. Now they think they're alive, but Jesus says, no, in fact, you're not. So we can look at this church and see some characteristics of churches that are dead that we can learn from so that we can avoid those obstacles, making those same mistakes. The first characteristic is this. A dead church is a sleeping church. They're asleep. Again, drawing on that imagery of the guards who are asleep. In this church, you would find people who were, um, who were doing good things, um, who were uh, in their lives comfortable. They were well off. There wasn't any real persecution going on for this church. Uh, Rome let this city be free and let Christians worship however they wanted to in this city. This was one advantage that believers had in this city that they didn't have really anywhere else in Rome. And certainly the, the cities, the churches that we've already looked at. And so they were left alone to worship however they wanted to. They didn't have to join any trade unions or guilds uh, like we saw at Thyatira. It wasn't like that. There wasn't any real idol worship going on, competing for their affections. They were left alone to worship however they wanted to without fear of persecution. Sounds a lot like America today, doesn't it? At least as things stand now. Um, and so what happened is what usually happens, they just got comfortable. They got complacent. They were well off materially. They didn't have persecution they were dealing with. And so they, while they once were alive and very vibrant, they kind of fell into just a routine. They fell into just doing what they were doing because that's what they had always done. Um, but Jesus there was a problem. Jesus says, I know your deeds. Now, no is in the present tense. It's not like, it's not, the, the idea here isn't that somebody showed up on Jesus' doorstep and said, hey, let me tell you what's going on over there. No, he's saying, I know intimately, personally. I know because I'm in your midst. I'm there. I've seen firsthand what's going on. And while other people see what you're doing and think, hey, this is a great church doing great things, I know your hearts and I know what your motivation is. I know where you are spiritually, and it is not good. He says, you're asleep. You're dead. You're not alive as you appear to be. You're not doing what you should be doing as you appear to be. In almost all of the other letters, when you look through the other letters, there's a commendation. There's praise built into this letter, into these letters. This letter is not the case. There's no real commendation. Now, in verse 4, you, he basically says, not basically, he says, some of you aren't dead. But, you know, that, that I guess you could take as being praised, but it's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, some of you aren't quite as bad as the others. I mean, you know, some of them are doing the right things, but the church as a whole, there's really no, there's no commendation there. This church is in bad shape in terms of Jesus' evaluation of it and how they measure up to what he wants them to be and his purpose for them to be. So what's the problem? Well, the members of this church 
would have known the history of their city, right? They would have known the story that I just told you about the guards being asleep, history repeating itself again. They would have recognized the meaning of the word. They would have known about the earthquake and, and what they once were as a city and now were in the present day when this letter was written. They would have known all of that and the significance of the phrase, you are dead, would have rung true for them, would have had great impact for them because of that. Because the, the other translation of that, as I read in my version, is you're asleep. I mean, Jesus is drawing on that imagery. He's forcing them to think about the mistake that that city has made, not once, but twice, and now the church is making. And so he says in verse 2, wake up. He tells them to wake up. Just as those guards were asleep, now Christ's church is asleep. And a dead church is one that's asleep. And think about, again, falling under attack, this, this city, while these guards are asleep. And think about the opening letter of the letter. Uh, in light of all of that, where Jesus proclaims his authority, his authorship, and he's telling them, I know you, I know where you are. This church was spiritually dead. This church was spiritually asleep. Bottom line, Jesus knows it and he tells them this. And, and so what does that mean for them? What does that mean for a church that's asleep? Well, it means they're asleep spiritually. Someone who's asleep spiritually really has no desire to walk in their, to grow in their walk with Christ. And a church is filled with people that are just kind of standing still. You're not really standing still. You're moving backwards. And that's where these believers are. They're not growing. They're not developing. They're just going through the motions. As 2 Timothy 3, 5, they got a form of godliness, but it's not true sanctification. It's not true spiritual growth. So the danger here for us as believers, as we grow spiritually, as we develop spiritually, the danger is that we get to a place where we think we've arrived spiritually, where we think, hey, I've learned all there is. And none of us would probably say that out loud, but we, we tend to think that way. We get to a certain point, things are going well, we know we're, we're, we're healthy in our relationship with Christ, and, and we're spiritually growing, we're mature, Maybe we've accomplished some good things for the kingdom, and we get to the point where we think, hey, I'm, I'm right where I need to be. I have arrived. There's, I can't imagine anything else being able to learn more or being better than I am right now. Churches get that way. You're effective. You do good things. You're reaching people. You're growing. You're, you're accomplishing things through the ministries that you're doing, and you get complacent. You get to the point where you think, hey, it's never going to be any better than this. This is exactly where we're supposed to be. And that may be true in terms of being where you're supposed to be. But when we get in that position, when we start to think a little too highly of ourselves, a little bit better than we should, we lose our humility and then we're in a dangerous position. And that's where this church is. They're past that point. I mean, they, they've gotten to the point to where they think that they are doing just fine on their own, going through the motions. And, and what, what leads to this is when life is good, when things are going well, we think we don't need Jesus as much, so we don't spend as much time with him in prayer, or at least our time with him becomes routine. We certainly don't spend time in his word. We're not pouring into his word, and we're not putting his word into us like we should, and then we become weak. You know, it's in those difficult times where we know we, we're in need, we're desperate for the presence of God, we're craving his word. It's in those times that we grow more, right? 
And God designs those times of trial for that reason because he knows that when things are good, as it was for this church for so long, that we get complacent and we don't realize how desperately we need him. And so we don't spend as much time with him and in his word. And then we end up asleep like this church. And if we find ourselves avoiding time or not spending enough time, or we find ourselves avoiding gathering with other believers and spending time with other believers, iron sharpening iron, the result is weakness. And we can even be together and go through the motions and not really have meaningful discipleship and encouragement and growth. And that's where this church is. We drop our guard, we go to sleep spiritually. Spiritual sleep also means you're asleep emotionally. You start going through the motions, you're not growing, you're not in tune with the Spirit, and so you're, you really, you're not in tune with the needs of the people around you. And that, that happens in the life of, of believers and churches. It's easy to become callous to when others are hurting. And the danger is that I get so wrapped up in my own life, in my own needs, in my own goings-on, that I am oblivious to the needs of people around me. I'm not paying attention. I'm not looking for ways that I can help others. And when I am confronted with them, I either don't recognize it or I'm too busy, I'm too wrapped up, I don't have time, I don't make time to minister to others. So I'm uncaring emotionally. Being asleep spiritually also results in weakness. Philippians 4.13 tells us, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But when you're asleep spiritually, you you don't realize that. Fear, you're consumed with fear. You're more apt to, to, to shrink back from, from steps of faith that God calls you to. You're not tapping into the strength that God provides because you're not walking in a healthy, close fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So weakness sets in. The danger here is becoming completely complacent and unproductive. To be driven by fear, to be driven by my own priorities that aren't what God wants me to be about, or filling my life up with too much busyness instead of letting God prioritize my life, putting him at the center, Christ at the center, and my life being formed around him. And I become unproductive. I become lazy. I'm not, I'm not living by the power of God because I'm not in a healthy fellowship with my creator. When we fall asleep spiritually, we find ourselves consistently justifying bad attitudes, bad habits, whether it's inactivity or just an outright compromise of our ethics. We justify it. We can justify anything if we try hard enough. We lower our standards. We accept a watered-down spiritual walk when we could have a healthy, vibrant walk with Christ. Whenever the focus of our lives shifts from God to ourselves, we're well on our way to being asleep spiritually, inactive, uncaring. And then as we're asleep spiritually, we realize that inactivity becomes just a part of of our lives. Even when we're doing things, it's not productive. And that's what this church is doing. A symptom of this of this condition is a phrase that you might hear in in a church that's asleep. Hey, we can't do that. (laughs) We've never done that before. We don't have the resources to do that. All of those things may be true. But if God calls you to step out in faith as a believer in your walk with Christ or as a church calls us to step out in faith, there will be Most of the time, if not all the time, there will not be human logic that's able to figure out all the whys in the house. But that's how God operates. It's only by his power, his strength, his resources that we do his kingdom work. But if I'm asleep spiritually, 
I'm going to default to, I can't do that because it's true, I can't. And I'm going to depend on my own abilities instead of the Lord's. Because for one thing, I'm not tapped into what he's leading me to do. I'm not in tune. The danger here is thinking that we're too young or too old or too far gone to be used by God. Satan would love to convince you that you can't be used by him. You've done too much in your past. You're too advanced in years. You're too young to make an impact for the kingdom of God. When God says, hey, all I want is for you to be an empty vessel. If, I, if you'll submit to me, I can use you. And this can, all of this should be applied corporately, right? This is a letter to a church, but we all need to evaluate individually where we are spiritually. Are we alive or are we dead? Are we asleep or are we awake? Dwight Gunner says this. He says, when churches begin to worship their own programs or priorities, they are spiritually dead. When they are more concerned with their public image than they are with serving people, they are spiritually dead. When churches love systems more than the Savior, they are spiritually dead. When churches are more concerned with ritual than they are with righteousness, then they are spiritually dead. When people are more concerned with the law than they are with life, when they are more concerned with material things than they are with the spiritual things of God, then they are asleep spiritually. He says, we live in a culture that grabs all of the pleasures of life it can, it can get, but it is culture that is actually dead. We live in a culture that never sleeps, yet the church is snoring spiritually. You know, like me, at least Gracie and Timmy, when they were a little younger, went through a, a stage, and I did too when I was younger, where they would sleepwalk. They didn't know I was going to tell the story this morning. I won't get too embarrassing. But they both, at, at one point in their lives, would, would, would uh, sleepwalk. And I, one night, it wasn't too far. They weren't too far apart. One night, we were in the living room. This is when we were still living in Scottsboro. Timmy comes walking in the living room, and he's like ser- all serious. And he's like, I, I got to do And he's just mumbling. You know, in his mind, he's making sense, and he's serious about whatever it is. And about two minutes in, I realized, I told him, I said, Timmy, you are still asleep. Go back to bed. He walks down the hall, gets back in his bed, go back to sleep. Have no idea what he said. Not too long after that, a couple months, Gracie does the same thing. She comes walking in the living room, and she starts telling us something. Makes no sense, but she thought, of course, it made sense. Did the same thing. Sweetie, you're asleep. Go back to bed. She went back to bed. You know, that, that proves a point. Just because you're moving doesn't mean you're awake. Just because you're talking doesn't mean you're awake. Just because you're going through the motions and you look like you're awake does not mean that you are truly awake. And the same thing is true for churches. They can be active. They can be moving. They can be doing stuff. But just because there's activity doesn't mean you're spiritually awake. Same is true individually. And that's the problem Jesus identifies in this church, is that they're moving, they're doing things, but they are just as asleep as they can be. They are not awake. Just because we're breathing doesn't mean we're living, and just because we're moving doesn't mean we're awake. Bottom line. Romans 13, 11, and 12 says, And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Are we awake or are we asleep? Are we oblivious to the world around us? Are we in tune to the Spirit and thereby in tune to the needs 
of the people around us. If we're going to stay alive as a church, we have to stay awake. A dead church is a sleeping church. Another characteristic of a dead church is that it's a disobedient church. Most of you know the name Elizabeth Elliot. She was uh, the widow of Jim Elliot. Uh, she has, has since passed on as well, but uh, he, was, he was speared to death in Ecuador in 1956 uh, by a tribe of, of Indians there. And, uh, and that's what she's most known for, is going back to those people and winning them to Christ, those same people that killed her husband, amazingly. And she had a life of missions, a life of serving the Lord. But she once told a story about her younger brother named Thomas and how his mother would let, and I, you know, I'm, of course, this was before my time, but I can remember um, when you go to the grocery store and you get paper bags. Anybody remember that? Get plastic bags now. But I remember my mom used to keep them under the, under the sink. She'd save them. And, and she told a story about how her brother Thomas, her mom would let, her, let him play with these paper bags. You know, like any kid, you can make an imaginary game out of anything. He'd get these paper bags out and he'd play with them, but under one condition. He had to put them back when he got done. And one day his mom comes into the kitchen, there's paper bags everywhere. He's been playing with them, he hasn't put them up. And he hears her son, she hears her son at the piano with his dad. His dad's playing the piano and they're singing hymns together. So she walks in and she says, Thomas, you need to stop what you're doing and go back and clean up these bags. And Thomas says, but mom, I want to sing. I'm singing hymns. I want to sing. And his dad looked at him and said, Thomas, it doesn't matter what praises you sing or how many, if you're living in disobedience. That's true for all of us. You know, we can go through the motions. We can sing the right songs. We can say the right things. We can even teach the right things. But if we're living in disobedience, it doesn't matter. And that's what's happening in this church in Sardis. They're doing good things, folks. Don't misunderstand. The ministries they've got going are fantastic. By all appearances, what we know. But their motives, their hearts are not right. They're living in disobedience. We have to be committed to obedience. Obedience requires belief. Remember what you've received and heard, Jesus says in the first part of verse 3. What is that? Remember the gift that Jesus gave you of himself. Remember the life that he's given you, the freedom that he's given you. Remember what you've been taught by the apostles, by his word. Remember all of those things. Strength, forgiveness of sins, a transformed heart, the promise of his presence. Remember, he says, I know where you are. He's with them, and they've forgotten that. They're not remembering what all they've received and been taught. We need to remember what we've received and heard. And what we've believed in, what we do believe in. Obedience also requires repentance. He says, repent. From what? Well, a church that is asleep, from one thing, they need to repent from complacency, from inactivity, from their hearts not being in right fellowship with God, from focusing on themselves instead of focusing on the Lord, from, from becoming complacent in the present instead of looking toward eternity. All of those things, they needed to repent recognize the problem, whatever it is, if God's bringing you under conviction, you've got to recognize the problem, confess, agree with God about your sin, turn away from that, and turn to Christ. By his power, overcome that sin, and he will provide freedom from that sin. So they needed to repent. Obedience also requires remembrance. Again, remember what you've been taught. Meditate on the goodness of God, on his sacrifice on the, the, the sacrifice that Jesus made for your sins. Remember, he's talking to believers here. 
He's not calling them to repentance in terms of salvation. He's telling them you need to repent of your sin that you're committing now and remember what you've already received, the sacrifice that Jesus has made. And then renew. There's a renewal that needs to take place, a renewal of the mission that God had given them as a church. They needed to get back on track with the mission. Obey it. He says, or they needed to obey it. He says, obey, which really means guarded. And again, you just have your minds flooded with the imagery, right? The story of those guards being asleep. Wake up and get back at your post. Stand alert. Guard what I've given you. And advance the kingdom of God. That's what those guards were supposed to be doing, and they were asleep. And that's now what the church should be doing, but is asleep. And that's what we should be doing. We, we've been given this precious treasure. And we have been given the responsibility of advancing the kingdom of God. By his power, by his strength, not our own. But we must guard it. We must guard it as what it is, a precious treasure. Um, if you meet the requirements that, we've just, that Jesus lists here, remembering, repenting, obeying, guarding, then you're going to be in a position to respond in obedience. And this is an important characteristic in remaining alive as a church because a dead church is a disobedient church. Another characteristic, a dead church is an unprepared church. The second part of verse 3, Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Those guards didn't know those, the, that Cyrus's troops were coming. They were asleep. They didn't have a clue. And he's drawing again. The comparison, the analogy here, you guys, y'all aren't going to be ready when I come. You're not going to be prepared. You're not going to be found faithful. A dead church is unprepared. A dead church is unprepared for evangelism, for outreach, for missions. You're not thinking in those terms. You're, you're self-focused instead of outward-focused. Being alive means we are sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, but a dead church is oblivious to that because we're not, we're not in tune to the Holy Spirit if we're asleep. A dead church is unprepared as a result for service when given the opportunity, when presented with opportunities. You know, if we're not actively serving others, it's not for lack of opportunity. It's because we're not paying attention because there's opportunities everywhere. And Jesus, if we ask and we pay attention, he'll present us with opportunities. But we have to be willing to stop our busy lives and take advantage of them. If your strength is not from Christ, then you have no strength to work with. You feel drained. You, you don't feel like you ever have enough time. You have no desire, no energy to serve, no passion to serve. And without all of that, without repentance, unless you turn away from whatever has caused you to be complacent, your complacency itself, you will be unprepared. Unprepared for Christ's return. We're not talking about being saved or not here. We're talking about getting to the end of our lives Jesus returning, whichever comes first, and him saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Finishing the race like Paul did and being able to say, I've done it. I've been faithful. I've run the race. Have I been perfect? No, but I've done what God's called me to do. What a shame it would be to get to the end of your life and realize you've wasted it. All of the opportunities God gives us to serve and to make an impact for him to be a part of his kingdom work, to get to the end of our lives and realize we were asleep and wasted it. 
We should constantly be not living in guilt. Now, don't take this the wrong way. We shouldn't be beating ourselves up every day living in guilt, especially if you're, you know, if you're being faithful. But we should constantly allow the Holy Spirit, listen to the Holy Spirit, evaluate our lives and respond in obedience to make sure we're doing what we're called to do. So unless they remember and act, they're not going to be ready. Matthew 6, 20 says, But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves break in, thieves don't break in and steal. You know, the years and years and years ago, of course, uh, there was a little thing called the Pony Express. You've heard of it, right? I'm sure. Uh, and I like history and, and, and little stories, little tidbits about history. And, you know, when it was active, when it was, was ongoing, um, it was known for, for its efficiency. Um, it was known for the ability to quickly, at the time, uh, to get packages, letters from one place to the next. And there was a route from St. Joseph, Missouri uh, to California, the Pony Express was, and it was dependent upon constant movement and constantly being ready. This, a rider on horseback with his letters would, would shout ahead. Um, when he would come up on the, there would be posts stationed, and they were stationed every 10 to 15 miles. As, as the rider would approach a station, he would shout ahead, and the, on very short notice, so the guy in the booth in the station had to be ready. Not only did he have to be ready, the reason he was shouting is because he would need to change horses, and the horse would be exhausted. And so he would shout ahead as he approached this station. And the guy at the station had to be ready. And he had to have his, his fresh mount ready to go. If there was any hesitation, there was a problem. And even when the guy that was riding into the station was staying the night, there had to be a guy on a horse ready to go when he, when he arrived. Now you think about how far ahead you can shout. And that's how, how quick this had to happen. And they had to be ready to go. And they were. I mean, until the telegraph came around, this was it. The telegraph comes in, and within, you know, a few months, the Pony Express is obsolete. But it's still, when you look at what they were able to do with what they had, the efficiency was incredible. The speed was incredible. And it all hinged on everybody being prepared, everybody being ready. If one person wasn't ready, the whole thing fell apart. Readiness. Are we ready? Do we live our lives that way? Are we ready for the return of Christ? If he came back right now, what would he say about my life, about your life, about your faithfulness, my faithfulness? Are we prepared? This church was not prepared. Sardis was not. One final characteristic that we learn from Sardis is that a dead church is a divided church. You see in this church, you see a a, a small remnant that's, that's obedient, that's faithful, a faithful few. There are a few people, verse 4, in Sardis who have not sold their garments. The good here, here's the positive, good news, bad news. The good news is, is even in a dead church, you're going to find a few people that are passionately, faithfully serving the Lord. The bad news is that there were some who were dead, who were living in disobedience, and they didn't even know it. That's the bad news. They were oblivious to it. They were, they were dead. Jesus is having to tell them, hey, guess what? You're asleep. You're dead. Wake up. You're dead. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they don't have a clue. You know, the people who were alive knew. They, they were in tune to the Spirit. They knew something wasn't right. They knew things were not going well in that church. So there's a choice that has to be made. 
The church doesn't, if they, they don't choose to wake up and regain life, everyone is going to suffer. And what hap- will happen, which is what happens in churches that don't wake up, those obedient few will finally give up trying to wake up the people that are asleep, and they'll move on, and the church will go away. It's happened. I mean, it's happening in our denomination. Those statistics I read to you, there are churches that are facing that right now as we speak because they refuse to wake up. And this church in Sardis is in danger of that. So they have a choice. They have to either fix it now or they have to, or they're going to die. They'll go to sleep permanently, the church will. And it is a literally a life or death, death decision for that church. What decision will they make? Because if all that's left, if the, the people who are alive give up and they move on, and all that's left is the church of the living dead, well, I mean, you do the math. And there's not going to be much happening in that church. What makes this so disturbing is that believers, as believers, and when you look at the landscape of churches in America and how many are declining, how many are asleep, what makes it so incredibly disturbing is that there is no people who have a greater reason to be alive than we. When you think about the fact that we've literally been rescued from death, we should be the most active and alive people and happy and joyful people. There are yet so many believers in this world, in, the, in our culture, in America today, are walking around asleep and totally oblivious. Look at verses 4 through 6. Jesus reminds them of what's ahead if they will regain their faithfulness, return to being faithful. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And will not, I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have a glorious future ahead of us. A future in heaven with walking side by side with Jesus. We've been cleansed from sin, freed from sin. And yet so many walk around as if they were still bound. And what we need in our lives, I I believe many believers and we, you know, if you're struggling with this, if you're struggling with complacency, if you're struggling with with not being effective, what this church needed in Sardis and what many believers need today is they need to release the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Yeah, I I think that uh, especially in the Baptist church, when you start talking about the Holy Spirit, people get nervous. We're going to start jumping pews or what, you know, I mean, people, but I'm going to tell you, I think what in a lot of our lives and our churches, what we need is a good dose of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times the reason we're not experiencing the Holy Spirit work in our lives is because we are quenching the Holy Spirit by unbelief, by lack of faith, by disobedience, whatever the case may be. And, and you know, God is God. He can do whatever he wants, but he allows us the ability to receive him or reject him. And that includes as a believer, he gives us the choice. We can put ourselves in a position to where the Holy Spirit can work in and through us in a mighty way. And in his wisdom and ways I don't understand, he also gives us the ability to choose, make decisions that will quench his spirit in our lives and in our church. We have to make a decision to let it go. And Eli is going to help me illustrate that this morning with one of his toys that I absolutely love. These toys are addictive, I'm just going to tell you. How many of you are familiar with Beyblades? If you have a young boy or have had a young boy or a girl, 
you know, girls like them too. Um, but both of my boys liked Beyblades, and I've got his Beyblades here. Which one are you going to use? The blue one? Okay, get everything you need there. All right, go ahead and put it together while I tell them. In case you're unfamiliar with Beyblades, here you go, bud. You want to do it on the table or you want to do it on the floor? All right. He's going to get it together here, okay? He's, he's got this down. I, I, I tried to do it last night, and I don't think I've done it since Timmy had his. I couldn't remember how to do it. But you've got two things here. Don't do it yet. I'll tell you when, okay? You, Eli, you got it ready? All right. He's focused. He's, all right. Just hang tight when you get it together, okay? So you got these two parts. You got the green part and you got the Beyblade itself. And you can get crazy with these things. You can build these things. I mean, you can buy parts for them. I mean, you can get, you can get crazy. But what happens is you've got the rip cord that goes into the green thing, whatever it's called. And the Beyblade itself attaches to the end of it. And what, to get these things going, you pull the rip cord and it releases this, this thing. And it just goes crazy. And we're going to show you. You may not be able to see it very well. But uh, you'll hear it, okay? Typically, what you do is you have two that battle each other. We're not going to do that because we may get two into it, and an hour later, y'all still be watching us play. But because I'm telling you, they're, they're fun. Um, but, but Eli's going to show us how it works, okay? Are y'all ready? Eli, are you ready? On your mark, get set, go. You can't see, but this thing's going crazy in here. It's just a, a, a glorified top that's spinning. And it'll go and go, and if, if I put this one in, they'll battle. I mean, they'll like, you know, the idea is the last one standing wins. That one exploded once. Oh, it exploded once? Well, yeah, that happens, you know. I mean, they battle each other and, you know. But uh, the, the whole idea, you know, if I've got it together, put it together for us again. Show us one more time. All right? This one's quieter. Okay, let's show us one more time. Put it together. If I've got it together... As it is right now, as it is right now, I mean, it's not doing anything, right? What has to happen in order for you to experience the full effect of the Beyblade, which is pretty awesome? What has to happen? You got to release it. Release it, Eli. You got to release it. And now we get to experience the full effect of the Beyblade, right? It's pretty cool, isn't it? All right, thanks, buddy. You can go have a seat now. All right. We'll do it later. All right. Yeah, I could keep going too. It's pretty awesome. The whole idea is that if you want to experience the Beyblade, if you really want to enjoy it, if you really want to see its impact, I mean, both of them impact, you got to release it. Again, God's God. He can do what he wants. He could force me into submission if he chose to, but he gives me a choice. He gives me freedom, the ability to think, to relate. That's part of being in the image of God is the ability to relate. And with that comes the ability to choose. There's a lot of that that we don't understand, but one thing we understand is that we have a choice. And if we want the Spirit to work in and through us, we have to make a choice to release the Spirit in our lives. We're not limiting God. He voluntarily gives us that ability. But if we do release Him, if we do remove obstacles, get out of our own way, determine to live in obedience, in submission, which is the key, by the way, the key to releasing the Spirit is submission. If I submit to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to have free reign, to allow Jesus to truly be Lord of my life, I will not be asleep. I will be fully awake, fully alert, and fully involved in the work that God's called me to do. So will we individually 
Will we be alive? Will we, will we be awake? You know, the one thing in this church, even though there's no real commendation, no real praise, there's hope. Why is there hope? Because there's still a few. There's a few that are awake at Sardis. There's life. Maybe a glimmer, but there's still life. And where there is life, there is hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for waking us up, for giving us life, for bringing us back from the dead. We were lost in sin, dead spiritually, without hope, without a future. And Jesus, you came to this earth, fully human, fully God, lived a perfect, sinless life, died as a perfect, spotless sacrifice for our sins on the cross. We're raised three days later from the dead to conquer death, to defeat death, so that we could have victory over sin and death. Just like we have to choose to allow you to work in our lives, you give us that ability, we have to choose to accept the gift of salvation. And I pray that if there's anyone out there today, either in this building or online, who has not accepted salvation through you and you alone, that they would invite you into their lives, understanding that we have all sinned and fallen short of your glory, that they need forgiveness of sin and that only you can offer that because you paid the price for their sins on the cross, that they would invite you into their lives and receive that gift of salvation and begin the journey of living, being alive, being awake, and in tune to what you're doing, involved in what you're doing in this this world. For those of us who belong to you, I pray that we would use this message while we are so very thankful that this church, Wall Highway Baptist, is alive, is actively pursuing your purpose. We don't want to get complacent, Lord. We don't want to get complacent as a church. We don't want to get complacent individually. We want to make sure that we stay awake, that we stay alert. And Lord, we know that that requires daily submission, daily obedience, following you each day and committing ourselves to you each day. I pray that we would stay in your word. I pray that we would stay in right fellowship with you. I pray that we would live in obedience to what you call us to do, that we would live by your guidance through your word and through your spirit every day. That our lives, our church would be characterized by obedience, by faithfulness, by right fellowship with you. And we know that if we do that, Lord, we're going to make mistakes along the way. We're human. We're imperfect. We're going to fall on our face from time to time. But overall, consistently, we will be a testimony of a living, vibrant, New Testament, kingdom-oriented church. That's what we want for our lives. That's what we want for this church. Give us strength. Give us ability. And keep us humble. In Jesus' name, amen.